Daniel chapter 9, and today we're just going to make it through verse 25, if that's all right. But for the sake of context, let's begin reading in verse 24, Daniel 9 and verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. What is the Jew pressing toward? He's pressing toward having the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of his father David and Israel in perfect fellowship with God. They have been through 70 years of captivity, but that was just a foretaste of all the trouble that was still to come to get them ready for the kingdom. And now uh, the, the angel is going to start breaking down for Gabriel, or for uh, Gabriel. The angel Gabriel is going to start breaking down for Daniel how these different weeks are going to work. So verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Three score is a fancy way of saying 60, three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. So we are given some markers on our prophetic timetable here. We have the beginning and the ending. So it starts with the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem and going forth, and it ends with Messiah the Prince in, in this particular verse. Now what we're getting in verse 25, you can see there's seven weeks and then 62 weeks. We'll talk a little later as to why, I, and I'm going to make an educated guess as to why that is broken into two separate time periods. But there's only 69 weeks dealt with in this verse. And then in verse 26, <clears throat> it will mention what happens at the end of those 69 weeks. And then in verse 27, we'll take our time and study what happens in what is called Daniel's 70th week. Uh, it is a major focus throughout the Bible. Jesus talks about it, so we're going to take our time. That's why we're going slowly through these verses, because it does play a major role in prophetic things that I think are soon to come, things that are unfolding probably in our lifetime. I, I hope so even, if I can say it like that. I, I hope that we're just there knocking at the end, knocking at the door there. So verse 25, let's take a look at the two bookends here that we have. It starts off with the commandment, to restore and to build Jerusalem. All right, get uh, Ezra. Ezra chapter 9. Turn to Ezra chapter 9. And get verse number 9. As I studied up for this, you, you can very quickly get sucked into a bit of a vortex here. There is so many guesses as to the dates and when exactly the commandment was given. And I think it was Artaxerxes. I think it was Cyrus. I think it was Darius. And oh my goodness, you just get lost in all the different approaches to this. One of the, uh, um, uh, one of the purposes of teaching is to take a complex thing and make it simple. So I'm going to try to simplify this as much as I can. But let me tell you right from the get-go that our calendar is severely messed up. Right? I, and it doesn't matter who you are, and I don't mean like the South African calendar with all the holidays, I'm not referring to that. When I say calendar, I'm talking what the calendar the world has been using for the last thousand or 1500 years, it is severely messed up. And it is impossible 
to pinpoint with any degree of accuracy. We can approximate, but to get an accurate idea of what year we are actually in, like since the beginning of time until now, that is going to be incredibly difficult to narrow it down beyond any certain point. So when I, when I give you dates today, understand we're doing the best we can with the information we have, with the history books that we have and various archaeological finds and things like that, but we can only narrow it down so far. Um, we are in the year 2023. If I'm not mistaken, we are currently using what's called the Gregorian calendar, it comes from Pope Gregory putting all that together. That, that was changed, right? That was the 500s. That was changed a few other times uh, after Jesus was born. It was changed a few times. So th things have gotten weird. Uh, we think it's 2023, and we have approximately 4,000 years in the Old Testament. That would put us at the year 6,023. But if you ask a Jew what year it is, and I'd have to check again to make it fresh in my mind, it's something like the year 5,800 something something, which is a little troubling. How did we get 200 years off there? <laughs> and and who, who's, who's right? Are we 200 years behind or... 200 years forward. You see what I mean? You can only narrow it down so far. All right, so most people will say the commandment to rebuild and restore Jerusalem comes with Nehemiah. And I think that is a very fair guess. I'm going to show you now why they would say that. But when you read the book of Ezra, the first half of the book, the temple gets rebuilt. The temple gets rebuilt. The Jews are allowed to go back to their homeland. Cyrus told them they could. They begin to rebuild the temple. It gets stalled. The building project gets stalled. The municipality came in and put a bunch of sanctions on them. That happens, paperwork, etc. And then the Jews rose back up under the preaching of Haggai and, and Zechariah, and they said, let's get the job done, temple standing. After the temple is standing, then Ezra comes in. Ezra doesn't show up until halfway through the book with his name on it. <laughs> He's not in the picture until Ezra chapter 7. Ezra shows up and he starts to sort out the problems with their society and one of the things that he's doing is helping get the city rebuilt. Look at Ezra 9 verse 9. Ezra prays here, for we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings, plural, of Persia, to give us a reviving to set up the house of our God, that was step one, Ezra's, Ezra chapter one to six, and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. So you can see that even in Ezra's time, before Nehemiah shows up in the city, temple's built, then Ezra shows up and starts to organize their spiritual endeavors but he acknowledges that the kings of Persia, Cyrus and on down, they have given us permission to work on the walls. All right, now come to Nehemiah chapter 1. So we could definitely make an argument that when we read in Daniel 9 about the walls and the city being rebuilt, the commandment going forth for that, we can definitely say Ezra 9.9 could be the start of that. And that would be approximately... 457 B.C. Right, and I'm putting a number on that. We'll talk more about the numbers in a moment. Nehemiah 1, verse 3. All right, here comes some of Nehemiah's brethren. Verse 3, And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof 
are burned with fire. The wall is still broken down. You see that? So even though they've been, they've been given permission to rebuild, they've been slow about getting it done for whatever reason. Nehemiah hears about this and says, oh dear, I, th- I thought with all this permission that we have, we would have been doing more to rebuild the city, but evidently no one's getting the job done. And this is a burden on his heart when he knows, listen, practical moment, God has given them an opportunity to do something, but they're not doing anything with that opportunity. Do you see how that might practically apply to today? We're going to come to that by the end of the lesson. So Nehemiah is heartbroken. He begins to pray. This brings us to chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. All right, now we have a time marker. You'd like to think it's simple. Just go to a history book, open it up, see when Artaxerxes started to reign. <laughs> but the scholars have all sorts of guesses as to the exact year. So, so much for that. He says that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. He, he was the king's cupbearer. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. It was a law. You could not be sad in the presence of the king. Verse 2, wherefore the king said unto me, why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. It was a criminal offense to be sad. Verse 3, and he said unto the king, or he, and said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, for what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. That's a real quick, we call it a Nehemiah's prayer. It's one of these jobs. Oh, God, help me. <laughs> one of the, where you don't even, you know, it's just inside. Oh, God, please help me. And then verse 5, and I said unto the king, if it please the king. And he sends him back. He gives him special uh, uh, privilege and, and grace here to go back and rebuild the city. So some people will say this is where the commandment went forth for the city, the streets, the wall to be rebuilt. Okay? This, some people will say, for 45 BC. So you have 457, 445. You got a 13 year gap, and there are guesses for the dates of both Ezra and Nehemiah all in between there. Okay? So I have I've always just kind of rounded that out a bit and said 450. Because it's somewhere in there. Okay. So come back to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to be back in Nehemiah a little bit later and try to give you a practical thought by the end of the lesson here. So that you're not buried in dates and names and whatnot. But so what you have from, and again, I'm working with the rounded number, 450. 450 BC. Okay, so if you take 450 years, that brings you to zero. AD. AD, those are Latin initials means antidomini, which is the year of our Lord. Okay, so that's why we say 0 AD. So 450 BC before Christ up until 0 AD, that's 450 years. And then if you tack on the life of Christ, you get 33 more years. That brings you to 33 AD. All right. Now again, I, I say 450 question mark, 450 plus minus. So it could be either side of that just by, you have a little bit of wiggle room in there. What we have in verse 25 is seven weeks and three score in two weeks. We'll talk just now about the division in those two times, but that's a total of 69 weeks, which is a total, remember these prophetic years, a day equals a year, 
that totals out to be 483 years. If you do the math, 69 times 7, 483. Are you with me? 69 times 7, so you make the, day, the weeks into days, and then you just make days into years, and then you get your prophetic timetable. 483. Watch this. 450 plus 33. What do you got? 483. And there were several early church fathers, early Christians. We're talking in the 100s, 200s, 300s. Several of them wrote, other Christians picked up on this and said, wait a minute, this is an outstanding evidence that the Messiah came right on time. And this is a, this is a great way to prove to a Jew that your Messiah was working on a schedule. Remember this in the, in the New Testament, that Jesus was born in due time, that he came to be de- testified in due time. He was right on time. He was working on a schedule, working on a schedule. For a couple centuries, the Jews are, are crying out, God, why are you taking so long? Why are you taking so long? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. We want him to come now. Amen? Amen. Amen. I want him to come now. But the Lord's got a schedule. He's got a plan. He's got a reason. But, and, and he's always right on time. So that's a, a fantastic evidence, I think, for me to see that Jesus is the Messiah being spoken of in this passage. Now, let's look further into the verse. Verse 25 from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince. All right, Messiah, and then it says the Prince. Why not say Messiah, the King? The word Messiah means the anointed one. And then it says Messiah, the Prince. Now, I think this is clear. You know this from other places in the Bible. Jesus is called uh, the Prince of Peace, right? If you just look one page back in Daniel 8, verse 25, at the end of it, he shall also stand up against the prince of princes. So Jesus is referred to as a prince in other places in the Bible. Let me show you one other place I think that's significant. I'll show you a handful of verses now. Come to Revelation chapter 1. So our timetable starts with the rebuilding of the city, which is going to be Ezra slash Nehemiah. And those 483 years takes us up to the time of Messiah the Prince, Revelation chapter 1. Now, I'm going to make a designation here, and and I hope you follow along with this. Not Messiah the King, Messiah the Prince. And I believe there's a reason that that designation is important. Let me me hope, I hope to flesh that out for you properly. Revelation 1, look with me at verse 5. Revelation 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the what? And the prince of the what? Kings of the earth. Do you see that? He is the prince of the kings of the earth. Please understand this morning, I am fully on board with calling Jesus King of kings and Lord of lords. I have no problems with that. Uh, When it comes to prophetical things, we can speak about those prophetical things as if they are, because when God has decreed that thing and said, this is what's going to happen, then it's going to happen. So I'm, I'm happy to call Jesus King of Kings. Please understand, no problems with the terminology, because that is a, one of those future facts that we can bank on today. But as it stands, to be technically proper about this, Jesus is not yet the King of Kings. He is the Prince of the Kings of the earth. He is waiting. A prince is a king in waiting. 
What is he waiting for? He's waiting for that day that he comes back, destroys the kingdom of the Antichrist, the Antichrist himself, and Jesus will then take over as king of kings. He will, he's not going to allow those, those other kings, those worldly kings, to continue ruling. He is going to set up new people in places and positions of authority. And I might be looking at some of them now. If you serve him faithfully now, you get a position of authority in that kingdom when he comes back. And, and he will reign as king of all of the new kings that will be over the earth. Look at Revelation 11 and verse number 15. If you need further support or evidence for that, this verse will do a great job. Revelation 11 and verse 15. It says here, And the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Well, that tells me something. The kingdoms of this world, they're right now not under the control of the Lord. Now, let's be careful about this. As God above, right, as, as the creator, yes, he is supervising nature and taking care of that. But when it comes to the politics and the governments of this world, let's please not blame that on God. <laughs> let's not say that God is the one orchestrating the laws and politics and the outworkings. He's not doing that. The kingdoms of this world, one day when Jesus comes back, they will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. There's your Messiah. All right, so right now he's a prince, which is a king in waiting. Look at Revelation 19. And verse 16, Revelation 19, let's go ahead and read starting in verse number 13, <clears throat> get a little bit of context. The marriage of the lamb happens in verses 6, 7, 8, 9, right in there, in verse 13, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God, and the armies which were in heaven, that's you, that's me. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he, that, uh, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the day he takes over. So that's the day the title becomes official. Like I say, you want to use that title now. I'm happy with that because there it stands. We know this is going to come to pass. But chronologically speaking, he's a prince. And he's waiting for this day to take over as king of kings. Now, come back to the Gospels. Let's get John chapter 18. John chapter 18. You guys remember when Jesus fed the... 5,000, 5,000, it's actually men, 5,000 families, there were women and children there as well, so probably about 10,000 people. Only in John's gospel do you get this information. After he fed the multitude, they surrounded him, and they were going to take him and make him the king. And Jesus had to slip away, because it wasn't time for him to be the king yet. God has a plan. The plan was that the Messiah has to come and suffer for our sins. He, he has to be cut off, we're going to see it in Daniel 9, but not for himself. He has to die for the sins of humanity. 
and make salvation possible, right? So in the Jewish mind, what they had been waiting for and their understanding of the Messiah was this, the Messiah will come, conquer the enemy, and give us our kingdom back. They, They skipped over the prince part where he has to come and wait to become the king. They skipped over the Messiah is going to be cut off, but not for himself. They, they skipped that. They didn't see that. And, and this is something that Paul and Peter, throughout the book of Acts, they preach about it over and over again, that if you had known your own prophets, you would have seen that Jesus, the Christ, had to suffer, die, and rise again. But you didn't, you missed Sabbath school. <laughs> you, you didn't go to our version of Sunday school. You, you missed those lessons. And therefore, you didn't recognize the Messiah when he was right in front of you because they thought the Messiah shows up as Messiah the King. So what did the wise men coming from the east, what did they say when they got to Bethlehem a couple of years after Jesus was born? Matthew 2, where is he that is born King of the Jews? You know what started their journey? They were off in a far country in the east where a bunch of Jews had been dispersed and been in captivity and they've been hearing from these Jews, hey, our Messiah is going to come and, and, and replace our kingdom and restore it and bring us back to the land. So then these wise men go looking for this newborn king. They know when to look because there's a timetable. And then that star comes and leads them, right? Okay, start asking around here. But in their minds, we're looking for a king. So what was the accusation that they brought against Jesus that eventually led to his crucifixion? This guy's claiming to be a king. Jesus never claimed that. He never claimed that. But, but look, look at how this conversation unrolls, uh, unfolds here. John 18, get verse 33. <clears throat> John 18 and verse 33. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Now forgive me just again, trying to keep it as simple as I can. If you read this next to Luke chapter 23, you can see that they made the accusation, Jesus is claiming he's the king and competition to Caesar. That's what led to this part of the conversation. Pilate takes him inside privately and says, are you the king of the Jews? Is this true? Verse 34, Jesus answered him, sayest thou this thing of thyself or did others tell it thee of me? So Pilate, you just been reading newspapers and Facebook and Instagram or... (laughs) Have you been studying your Bible and you actually came to that conclusion on your own? Which is it? Verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? (laughs) I don't keep up with this stuff. I don't know. Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? So he said, the the accusation of you being a king came from your leaders. It's not something that I came up with. Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight? Now, now think about that for a moment. We, we don't fight to establish Jesus' kingdom now. Not with, not with carnal weapons. Although many people that have called themselves Christians for the last two, millennium, two, two millennia, they have done that. And they were completely wrong to do that. But one day, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And, and His servants will fight. Did you read it in Revelation? The armies come back and there we are. So so watch a key word in this verse. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But, circle it here, now 
is my kingdom not from hence? A lot of the newer versions of the Bible take out the word now. And you take that, the word now out of that verse and you create a, a big problem. Because then if you take the word now out, he's saying, but my kingdom is not from hence. In other words, my kingdom will never be here on the earth. Oh, yes, it will one day, but not right now. Not right now. So this shows us Jesus, yes, he recognizes. Am I a king? Well, there's truth to that statement. I'm a king in waiting, just not now. So it is perfectly right to call him the prince. Okay, let's come back to Daniel 9. <clears throat> Daniel 9, and now we'll focus in on this division in the weeks. It says, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The word score, Old English for 20. So you take three score, that's three times 20, that's 60. So that's just so you understand the Old English there. Seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Wow, that has been a head scratcher for me for years. I tell you what I've said for the last I don't know, 25 years in teaching this stuff. I have no clue why he divided the weeks. That's, that was, I, finally, these, in this last couple of weeks, in looking around, praying about it, I, I, I have one option. So it took 25 years to get one idea. <laughs> isn't, isn't that a sad commentary? 25 years for one idea. To, <laughs> that light bulb came on, but it's not really bright. <laughs> it's a dim light bulb, I admit. But here, here's my suggestion. Seven weeks. All right, what would that equal? 49 years. Everybody follow that? Seven times seven, 49. So if you take 450, again, my rounded number, question mark, 450, and then minus 49, that puts you at 401 BC. Okay, plus minus. Well, wh why would that number be significant? That is the approximate time that Malachi wrote his book. That was the last prophet of Israel. That would have been the last time that God sent a prophet to talk to his people. So you have 49 years from Nehemiah to Malachi. And then, so that's 49. The other 62 weeks, that's 434 years. God just fell silent. It is what we refer to as the silent years. The intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. So there was a, a great gap of time. And this is biblically, it was prophesied that God would not send a prophet for a while. You read that in the book of Psalms and in some other places. Amos talked about it. But even the Jewish writers that were in that gap, they even said, we don't have a prophet. We're not sure what God is doing because no one's here to tell us to say, thus saith the Lord. They acknowledged, we, we don't have a Malachi. So now they're in that gap. Right, so come to Malachi chapter 4. So this is my best guess, that God makes a break in the seven weeks and 62 weeks simply to acknowledge that there's going to be a gap of time where there's no prophet. That's my best guess. And, and I'm, I, like I tell you many times, I'm, I'm open to different ideas. Perhaps the Lord will show me more on that as time goes on, but 25 years for one idea I'm not holding my breath for the next. Malachi 4, verse 4. Here's how Malachi finishes his book. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, 
which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. For behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Oh, the Old Testament er- ends on the word curse. Right? That's the last thing the Jewish nation heard from God for 434 years until a guy shows up. And, and this, this young man, it was prophesied before he was born that he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. And that man was John the Baptist. And they went out to John and they said, who are you? And John said, listen, I'm not the Christ. I'm not that prophet talking about Deuteronomy 18. They said, well, then who are you then? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He said, I'm a voice. What, I'm, I'm speak, God's speaking to you again. Finally. The law and the prophets were until John. So there was a gap of time. And I think God is simply acknowledging that after Malachi, something significant is going to happen. And that would be the lack of prophets. And then you're waiting. The next 62 weeks, you're just waiting for God to speak again and the Messiah to come and do what he's going to do. Now come back to Daniel chapter 9. So John the Baptist, his entire ministry, you know, was to introduce the Messiah to Israel. He was preparing the way so that people could see the Lord. And his proclamation, guys, we should be doing the same today. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. We are there to point people to the Messiah, to the promised one, the anointed one, come to die for us. Now, Next week, we'll dig more into verse 26 and the Messiah being cut off. So I'm going to leave comments for, the, for that for later. But at the end of verse 25, it says, The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. When you read the book of Ezra and you read about how uh, the nation of Israel struggled to get their temple rebuilt, it was troublous times. People tried to stop that. And then when Ezra tried to reorganize the spiritual life, of the Israelites. That was troublous times. And then when you read about Nehemiah going into the land, he gets that special exemption from the king and he goes back to Jerusalem and he starts to rebuild and immediately, immediately, the enemies show up on the building site and they make that building project difficult. Nehemiah chapter three, and chapter four, you read about the wall getting, it took some time, but by chapter six, it gets finished. Come back to Nehemiah chapter seven though. Nehemiah chapter 7. Oh, I'm sorry. Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 4, forgive me. In Nehemiah 7, they finished the wall. Forgive me. I want to show you something in Nehemiah 4, verse 7. Sorry. Nehemiah 4, verse 7. So Nehemiah goes back, and in chapter 3, like I said, he he starts the rebuilding on the wall. Chapter 4, building's going on. Chapter Six, the wall's finished. By chapter seven, they're still working on the city. It takes more time to get the streets and everything set up. So this is a big project. And uh, I don't think Nehemiah even finished it in his day completely. Nehemiah chapter four, just look with me. We're talking about the troublous times. That's our focus now. Some of the challenges that Nehemiah faced. Nehemiah four, verse seven. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah 
and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth. Just be mindful of the fact that although you're growing, not everybody around you is going to be happy about that. You see, this is, I'm trying to move us out of the historical lesson and out of the prophetical lesson into a practical lesson, something that might help you today. Because they're doing the right thing. But you're not going to find a lot of encouragement from without. You're going to find the encouragement from the other people working on the same building project. Right? Verse 8. And conspired all of them together. All your enemies get together against you. Who are our enemies as Christians? The world, the flesh, the devil. They work together in concert to stop that work. They conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Study that word through the New Testament. How many times Paul tried to go somewhere to get something done? He says, but Satan hindered me. How many times have you had plans to do a little bit more for the Lord and other stuff just comes up and you get hindered? It says in verse 9, nevertheless, we made our what? How do you get through the troublous times? The city, the wall, the commandment has gone forth, rebuild. You made a mess in the past. You've been punished. Now God is giving you a chance to rebuild. And it's not going to be easy. The, tr- the troublous times are going to continue. How do you get through it? We, we pray. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. Right? How many of you remember this verse from the Gospels? Watch and pray. Okay, there's a great cross-reference. That's how watching and praying works. We get down, we pray, but we keep one eye open. We're going, okay, Lord, I can see, you, you are mindful. You're paying attention to what's going on around you. It's not like the enemy says, oh, he's praying. Let's back off. <laughs> he's, he's not going to let that slide. So they pray, but they also set a watch against them day and night because of them. Because they knew the enemy is going to be active. Verse 10, and Judah said, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. Well, amen. We, we got some guys... Hold, you know, bringing the stones, carrying the stones, pushing the wheelbarrows with the, with the cement and the mud and all the products and all the tools and the bearers of burdens, they're getting weak and weary. Amen. Don't, don't you sometimes get tired of the building project that is your life? Doesn't it get heavy sometimes? The burdens that you bear? All right. There you go. And, and, and the next thing, and there is much what? Rubbish. You say it with the right accent, it really, really works. Rubbish. (laughs) This is not a word we use in America very much. As a matter of fact, we make fun of people for using it in America. They say, where is the rubbish? We go, are you British? (laughs) (laughs) Would you you like some tea with your rubbish? (laughs) Seriously, we do. Maybe it's just where I was from, but that's that's not a word we used often. That has nothing to do with the lesson. I just thought I'd tell you that. But, listen, there is much rubbish. You know what will slow down your building project? What, what will make the times even more troublesome is all the rubbish laying around in your life. 
this is rubbish. The enemy didn't bring the rubbish. This is leftovers from your past. This is leftovers from 70 years ago. This is way back when the captivity was still going and, the, and Jerusalem got burned to the ground. This is stuff that you still haven't taken care of. You just left it. And the longer you leave it, the weaker you get and the harder it is to deal with it. But the street and the wall must be built in troublous times. You don't look at the rubbish and go, oh, shame, there's rubbish. Can't work today. <laughs> you say, what do, we, well, what do we do about it? Let's clean it up. So that, they, this is what they said, so that we are not able to build the wall. Oh, no, no, you're able. You're just going to have to work a little harder. Amen. Amen. You, you need to amen that point. You just got to work a little harder. Say, but I didn't put the rubbish there. That was my forefathers. You can sit around crying victim all you want, Snowflake, but you're going to have to pick up the rubbish. Amen. (laughs) You like that little Snowflake comment, didn't you? Yeah, Snowflake, pick up the rubbish. I didn't put it there, but, but it's there and it's in your way, so pick it up. You can cry about it or you can do something about it. Crying about it is not going to... Doing it, it's not going to get rid of the rubbish. It's not going to build the wall. And then the adversaries, just for the sake of time, verse 11 on down, the, they start making a plan. The adversaries aren't going to quit. But come on down to verse number 19. So they have a plan. Verse 19, And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, The work is great and large. I'm just prepping you for the next for the next service. We're going to talk today about the harvest truly is plenteous. The work is great and large. And we are separated upon the wall one from another. So there's some distance there. In what place therefore, verse 20, ye hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye thither unto us, our God shall fight for us. They said, okay, adversaries are there, rubbish is there, we're weak, what do we do? Consolidate our efforts. I'm here, I'm going to hold my post. You're going to be a few meters down the way, you hold your post, you hold your post. And we know our positions. We are, even though there's a little bit of space between us, we don't live right next door. We're all doing the same job. So we're working together. Even though, even though physically, geographically, we're separated on the wall. But we're still together. Verse 21, so we labored in the work. And half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. Likewise, at the same time, said I unto the people, let everyone with his servant lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labor on the day. They didn't even go home. The work is so great and large. They they dedicated themselves to this 100% until the job was done. Verse 23, so neither I nor my brethren nor my servants nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes saving that everyone put them off for washing. They didn't even go home to change clothes. They would just let the man sneak off for a minute because after a while, we can only take so much of that. They started to smell so bad they said, you need a break. So you go take a bath and jump in with your clothes and all. Take everything, wash it. Come back and get right back to work. Is, is that a convenient way to... No, it's not convenient. That's why it's called troublous times. You, you see what they did. They made a plan to get the job done. 
They didn't make excuses for why they weren't going to do the work. So what do we do when troubles hit? We don't stop the work of God. We work smarter. We work together. We work harder if we need to. Rather than looking for a way around it, we just find a way to go through it. We do it smarter. We do it together. We work harder. I'm going to finish on verse 6 because this is where it all started, and I hope this sticks with us. So built we the wall. Now, the, the same thing that they did to accomplish the, the building of the wall, that's what they're going to have to do to build the city. See, the wall is just one part of it. The, building the city, that's your roads and your buildings. That's a lot of other stuff. So built we the wall, and the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. Here's the key. For the people had a mind to work. They had made up their minds. We're going to do this. And then the adversaries come and the people got weak and go, oh, oh, but we're so tired and there's so much rubbish. Oh, we just can't get this done. Nehemiah says, come on, guys, come on, come on. Let's stick with it. Come on, guys. We got a plan. This will work. Let's all grab a weapon and grab a tool and let's stand our post and let's get the job done until Jesus comes. Okay, he didn't say that, but you know. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> let's, let's find something to do. Let's stand our guard. Be aware that the enemy's out there, but let's work smarter. Let's work together. Let's work harder. Let's get it done. All right, let's all stand, if you would, please. Father, help us. Lord, the work is great and large, but we also know that uh, the labors are few, and therefore, Father, sign us up. Even in troublous times, we want to be busy about your business. And Father, you never said any of this would be easy, but you also promised that your grace would be sufficient. And it is a privilege to, to be a laborer together with you, uh, Lord, help us to retain what we've heard, and I pray you bless the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you guys enjoy some fellowship.